Welcome to the Branches podcast. Branches is a community of faith, hope and love in the South Orange County. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about our faith or our community, visit our website at branchesoc.com. Good morning. Good to be with you. Those of you who were here last week got a little bit of a taste of why I'm here, but for those who weren't here last week, my name is Ryan Maroney. Um, it's been an awesome experience to live vicariously through you guys. In fact, I've been somehow indirectly involved in this church since its inception. Book and I go way back, back in his shoreline days when he was pastoring there. And um, it's been great to see you grow. It's been great to see you flourish. It's been great to see you struggle and struggle well. You guys have been through a lot, and it's been neat to see you develop as a church. And I'm just really honored and humbled to be asked to be here in front of you. In my wildest dreams, I probably wouldn't have anticipated when helping Boogie prepare for these passages. He's doing a passage. I was just talking to Greg, and I don't remember the name of it. I'm sorry. Like 100 essential scriptures or 100 essential? How much are you guys paying attention? None? Okay. <laughs> so you're like me. Nobody knows what we're talking about. Okay. So uh, in, he was getting to the passage in 2 Timothy on money and it being the, the root of all kinds of evil. So he asked me to come prepare. We met down here at the coffee shop in the harbor, and I, I made some notes, albeit limited, and um, went through maybe 10 minutes of, here's just like me spitballing on this. And in classic book form, he just kind of, that was the extent of our preparation. He goes, great, you got it handled then. And when we just talked about other stuff, because he said, you're going to do it. And I thought, well, okay, I don't often get the chance to preach, but I shared last week that I've been for the last 14 or so years, more so in ministry, but the last 14 years, I've been at this intersection of money and worship. And what I mean by that is my day job is a certified financial planner. I'm a CFP, and I, I deal with people all day long helping them with their money, but I moonlight and had been doing that all the way until September of last year as a worship pastor and a few different churches serving primarily in worship and hoping to foster and help develop a culture of musical worship, not just worship like what we just did here, which was awesome, but also trying to develop a culture, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, at fostering an environment where worship expands beyond just music and beyond just what we sing and beyond just what we do here for the limited maybe 20 minutes through the week that we have in worship here. And so I have a unique perspective. It doesn't necessarily make it any better, but it's a unique perspective on money and worship and where it collides. And when asked to talk about how the Christian should, should have a look of finances or how do we look at our money and, and have a proper perspective of money, that is a huge topic. And I stand on the great shoulders of better thinkers than me that I am really indebted to, whether it be Randy Alcorn or Tim Keller or John Piper or Dave Ramsey. And there's lots of guys who've come before me who have really paved the road that have informed my thinking greatly. And I'm indebted to them. So much of what I'm going to say this morning isn't necessarily even original thought. It's a synthesis of the last 15 years of, of living as a pastor and as a financial advisor. And uh, my hope is that it becomes less of a discussion that it can easily devolve into about just give me the skinny on what am I supposed to do with my money. And the scriptures aren't, um, fortunately, they aren't that deductive. It's not that myopic. And what I mean by that is there's a, this vast middle ground. I spoke on it last week, and this will be in some ways the intro to say, I often am sitting in my office in front of folks, and I do a lot of, I do a lot of counseling of believers and non-believers alike. And for the believer, it's, um, it's challenging because I think if you do any sort of cursory look at scripture and money, 
Book talked last week about how roughly 15% or more of what Jesus talked about was money. So it was a big deal. And so you can read passages in Scripture that really press you towards money is, is some kind of evil and the root of evil, and it's something that is a source of consternation and challenges, and riches can lead you down a really dangerous path. Therefore, you should go all the way towards this divestiture over here. And, and the Bible's telling you have nothing. So all the way on this side of the spectrum is don't have anything. And some people over here who are poor in this room are like, yeah, that's right, you rich people, you know. And the, the poor people over here are like, I'm better because I'm poor and I don't struggle with greed or I don't struggle with temptation, these things. I don't struggle with it because I don't have anything. And the Bible wants me to have nothing and give it all away. And then over here is the far end of the spectrum is the health wealth gospel that popularized, I think, mainly throughout like the 80s and 90s and is still in full force today, which is some pastors, you'll hear some of them on TV, some of them send you mailers. Most of it's disgusting because it's saying you've got to follow some formula if you had the right faith, if you were the the right kind of Christian, God would have you be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That uh, You would be full of blessedness and riches, but primarily the riches part, right? I, I ran into a, a really unfortunate situation once a long time ago where I was seeing a movie up in Newport, and I got out really late. I don't remember the movie, but it was getting out like at 1 a.m., and it was a late movie, and I came upon a briefcase that was sitting on the ground that had stuff in it that was just right there in the middle, like where you would walk on the line for the movie theater. And there was nobody because it was so laid out. And I walked out, and I, I was kind of thinking, I mean, the last thing in my mind was that I'm going to take a briefcase that's not mine. I was actually going, maybe there's an ID or something that I can call to say somebody's left this briefcase. But I hear this strange sound like a lawnmower off, off on the far distance to my left. And from around the corner comes a, a guy that looks kind of like a, somebody from like a Leonard Skinner band and a long beard, and, and he was wearing like awesome hippie tattered clothing. And he um, had developed this, rigged pull system that he connected to his wheelchair that was like a motorcycle and he was he was like burning around the corner coming around the corner towards me pulling himself on a wheelchair with like a two-stroke engine and he flies up to the briefcase and he's really he's really he's angry thinking I'm stealing his stuff it was his and I was doing my best to say, I was, I was trying to just call you or call somebody, and, and it quickly turned to be like, okay, we're all friends now, and nobody's trying to hurt anybody. And I asked him his story, and he'd been traveling around the United States following these health, wealth, gospel folks as somebody who had uh, attempted suicide and failed. And that's why he's a paraplegic. And so life had gone off the rails. In desperation, the last attempt to try to kind of be the salve for what was ailing him was just to end it all. And he jumped off a bridge and didn't succeed. And then at that moment, somehow the Lord grabbed his heart and the Lord called him up out of that darkness. I believe his faith to be genuine. I believed him in that his, his trust was in Christ. But somehow what was, he was convinced of is that if his faith was right, <clears throat> if he did the right things, the kind of blessedness he was after both financially and with his own body, his, his own health, would be, there's an equation there to, if I had the faith, if I did the right things, God would reward me. And his reward he was looking for was new legs, literally new legs, because they, they you know, he didn't waste down, it didn't work. And so we talked for a while, and my heart broke, and I thought, man, how sad. Um, and I was also encouraged how amazing is the Lord to have pulled you out of this? And, and how sad is it that you have this, kind of this 
swamp, he's kind of wading through and going nowhere. And he'd been following these televangelists and the faith healers and the health wealth guys around the, around the globe, going to the front of them when they would say, pray for healing and pray for this blessedness, and it unsuccessfully. And I asked him, if we pray now for you to be healed, um, what, what is it that would heal you and what is it that wouldn't? You know, what are the pieces of the equation? I was struggling going, give me the, give me the numbers to fit into the equation. So two plus two equals healed. So what, what are the numbers there? And it was, well, it's faith and it's obedience. And I said, okay, so let's pray. So we prayed. I laid hands on his legs and we prayed together. Lo and behold, he wasn't healed. And I thought, let's talk about it. So we talked for a bit and I asked him, why do you think this is? And he said, well, it's because either you or I don't have the faith that we need to be healed. And that was about as far as we could take it, because that's a, a monumental hill to climb then, to get over this aspect of, wow, okay, that's a big topic. And so we dialogued a bit after that, gave him my card. But I tell you this story because we can sometimes think of money in the same way, that we talk about these two polarized spectrum ends. Both are wrong. God doesn't want you to be rich. He may want some of you to be rich, but he doesn't want all of you to be rich. And God doesn't want all of you to be poor. And being rich doesn't make you better, and being poor doesn't make you better. But the Bible talks a lot about money, not as a means of solely an expression of God's goodness for you, or not as an answer to a right-lived equation of one plus one equals two. Sometimes that's the case. But that's not usually how the Bible talks about money and talks about faith. It's very different. And so, in this intersection of worship and money, I wanted to pick a passage today in Luke that talks about that intersection of money and worship. And so, if you have your Bibles with you, take out Luke 12, 32 to 34. Yeah, if, we have, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll have them pass them around. So, you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles for you. Okay. The context here is Jesus in his earthly ministry. He's walking around. He's with his disciples. He's doing a lot of teaching in this passage in Luke. Luke's a fantastic book that's really outlining really the day in the life of Jesus. There's so many of these vignettes about Jesus' daily living. This happens to be one of the days in the life of Jesus as he's walking around. And he's teaching. And these are his words, not Luke's. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out and an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12, 32 to 34. I want to pray. Lord, we hear your word and I'm reminded of the promise that it is true and it is your words, and that it is good for us, not just for our discipleship and sanctification, but for reproof, for building up in righteousness, for, for moving us from where we are today to where you've called us to be. So we know you have a message for us that is moving us from where we sit now to a better place. And I ask, Lord, that it would be your spirit working within me and not my words that would be that catalyst to progress us as a church and as people forward that we wouldn't be idle in our faith, that we wouldn't be stagnant, but knowing that there's a divine appointment here and now this morning with you, 
where you have ordained thoughts to enter into our minds, to, to filter out into emotions and how we feel, and then ultimately to express itself in posture and action and in who we are. And so, Lord, I pray that that becomes the fruit of our labors this morning. May your will be done on, the name, on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay. So, if the inner essence of worship, meaning if, if when we're worshiping and we're singing, the inner essence is how we feel and how we emote and what our hearts are doing and the stirring, and, and it, it's not yet the outward expression of hands raised or action, but the inner essence of worship is showing how infinitely valuable God is to us, then the outer expression of worship is, is similarly showing how God is valuable to us. And if Paul was right in 1 Corinthians 10.31 where he says, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, and all that you do, do so for the glory of God. So if worship is now expressed in life, and if all that we are is an expression of worship, and it's not relegated just to song and just to what we sang, and money and things is a big part of life, then money and things is a big part of our worship. And we can't separate out. We've got church stuff, and we've got worship we do here, and we've got giving and tithing, but then everything else we do with our stuff and our money is not really part of this dance over here. It's not really part of our worship experience. Well, the New Testament is radically different in how it describes worship. There is no lines. All that you are is an expression of how you value God. And every one of your dollars is a tool used to express your values. Not just the dollars you give in tithing, not just the dollars you give to charity or missions, but everything that you do. Every action every dollar spent and saved, the way that you earn, use, and lose your money is indicating your values. And that's kind of frightening, is it not? I want to say a confession before I move on. The old preaching to the choir expression rings true here for me because um, this is something that I think we as a nation struggle mightily with. This is something that I struggle mightily with. And if you're thinking, oh, this tinge is rising up and you're like, oh, no, here's going to be a message that's going to make me feel guilty and going to make me feel bad for what I do, I hope not, unless that's God's intention. But know that you'd be in good company then, if that is the case. And know that I don't preach from a position of authority and superiority, but I'm preaching from within you. I'm intentional about coming down from here to say, I'm part of this process with you. I'm in this struggle with you. I'm part of this deal, and I don't stand over here aside from the, the battle and say, well, you guys need to take up this kind of armor to help you. I, I'm taking it up with you. And so that's my confession that um, much of what I'm saying is, is preaching right to my own heart. So if money in life and money is a big part of life, then it's a big part of worship. So this passage is really a, an expression of worship first. It's not about money exclusively. And so if we were to think, how does, this, how does this passage intersect money and worship? Was the question I would start with. And I think if we're going to talk about how life expresses worship, I would be remiss if I didn't start with the fact that in my prayer... I'm convinced that there are folks here under a divine appointment that are here because God has ordained something to be said to you. Maybe through me, maybe just through his spirit, maybe through somebody else here at the church. God works through people. And I'm convinced that the, one of the primary means by which he's communicating to others is through others and through his word. And so if we're going to talk about worship, I, I can't get the cart before the horse. There are folks here that cannot worship simply because you don't know Jesus. You don't know our Savior, 
And if we get to the point of what you do with your money, how you worship, what life should look like, what does Christian living do, if you start over here and don't know Jesus, this becomes, this becomes self-helpism, and it becomes social gospel, and it becomes nothingness. None of that matters if the step over here isn't know Jesus, that Jesus as Savior. Turn from where you are and, and, and come to Christ. And I know that's really matter of fact, but I'm starting there to say, if, if you've been coming to this church and you've been leaning in a little bit to this Jesus thing and to Christianity, and you've been exploring the faith, and you've been looking at Jesus through the lens of, like, ah, I don't know, maybe I'm not sure, and I'm, I'm reluctantly kind of a, dipping my toes in the Christian pond. And um, I'm going to be the guy that isn't um, maybe just my technique in evangelism. I'm the guy saying, look, there's a reason you're here. The reason you're here this morning, whether you know it or not, there's a guy standing in front of you saying, Jesus is reaching out to you. That, that stirring in your heart, that thought right now in your mind about maybe there's something in the way that I am that I need to recognize that I can't do it on my own, that the self-helpism, that if I find some tick, trip, some, that was terrible, some tip or trick on how to live life that all of a sudden is going to make me better or make me holy, no, none of that is. You're not good enough. It's me telling you that I'm not good enough. This church is not good enough. Your life is not good enough. You will never be good enough for Jesus. And he looks at you and says, I love you, and I'm saving you anyways. So if you're waiting for these things in life to stack up so that you can be a worshiper and that you can do things right and that your finances come and that your relationships are in order and that you're, you're whatever, 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 none of that matters until primarily you know Jesus. You have to connect with him. You need Jesus. You need his saving faith, and you need to recognize it's by grace and by grace alone. And I stand and raise my hands and sing by saying, by Jesus' grace I've been saved, not because I get any of this right, not because I've got this in line, not because I'm who I think that I should be, because Jesus says, I love you anyways. And God looks down at me, and he doesn't see me. He looks down and sees his son. He sees Jesus. He looks down, and he sees a man clothed in the righteousness of Christ with a ring on my finger and with a celebration happening. And thank the Lord he doesn't see me, and he sees Jesus. And he doesn't just say, not guilty. I hate analogies about salvation because it's always about some courtroom, and some guy comes in and pays the price for you. And, and it's never right because the reality is, is I'm not looked at by God as not guilty he doesn't just say, you're not condemned, even though you've done wrong things. He looks at me and says, you're righteous. He doesn't just say, you're not wrong. He says, you're now made right. You're now made in a position of posture and elevation. I'm honoring you. I'm setting you out highly above. And I'm calling you my son. And I'm bringing you into my family. That is salvation. That is what it means to know Jesus. When we look at ourselves and say, I'm not, I can't do it. And I've messed up. And Jesus comes and he says, I know. And I've done it for you. And now I look at you as righteous and whole and complete. So when we worship, this is why we worship. Amen? This is why we worship. So this passage about money and worship, it starts there with the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, there's no magic words. There's no special prayer. But I'd like you to take a step of faith. Sometime today, talk to somebody here, talk to one of the pastors, talk to me. I would love to talk to you about Jesus. Come and just say, I I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do next. It's a great question, a great way to start. I'd love to answer that question for you. But none of that rest of the stuff matters. And I'm sorry if that's one of you, but it's time to check out then, because none of the rest of that matters. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Not for you. 
But for the rest of us, we'll go on. Okay. Do not fear. We're starting with that, right? In the passage. Do not be afraid. And I think this passage magnifies five things. As I looked at the ways that I think that we can inwardly express worship through this passage before we outwardly express worship, I start with these five. And I start with do not fear. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. We are his flock and he is our shepherd. If he is our shepherd, then Psalm 30, 23 applies. Guys, remember that passage? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That is, I lack nothing. I need nothing. Anything that I have and anything that I don't have is direct provision of God. We have to trust that he knows best and he's our shepherd. But we move further. He's not just shepherd, he's father. Do not fear, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So now we go from a shepherding relationship to a familial one, the adoptive relationship. He's now our father. It deepens, right? We're starting to deepen in the relationship with, with God here. But it doesn't stop with father. It moves on to kingship. Because he says he's gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Only the king has the keys to the kingdom. Kingdom implies security, wealth, providence, sovereignty. He moves from our shepherd to our adoptive father, now to the king who has all and is all. But it moves on. He's generous, right? He's a generous father. Notice he gives the kingdom. He doesn't sell it to us. He doesn't rent it to us. He doesn't lease it to us. We don't borrow it from him. It's not lent in some ways. All that we have is his anyways, but he's saying, I give it to you. But it doesn't stop there. The last thing about this passage that blows my mind is that he's happy to do it. That God is our shepherd, father, king, and generous benefactor. If you asked a question, random on the street, I don't know what that late night show is. It's like Jay Leno or something does man on the street questions. And you ask people out there saying, what, does make God, what makes God happy? Do you think one of the first answers you'd get was to give? Makes him happy to give to us. That what pleases God is to be your benefactor, to give to you. It makes him happy to do so. We don't think of him often that way. We think of it as a transactional equation, right? I do these things, therefore God is obliged to, to do this. Or he goes, okay, good. Now that you've done that, I'm free to do this for you. But I couldn't do it until you did this. There's parts of the faith that do work that way. But what we're talking about is God saying, I'm happy to give you the kingdom. You're my son. You're my daughter. I give you the inheritance. So inwardly, as we look at this passage, and we think of God these ways, these are beautiful expressions of inward worship of God as shepherd, father, and king, as giver, and as happy to be our giver. But outwardly, it moves to something, right? This is a call to action. So this passage talks about then moving on to saying, make money belts that don't wear out. Money belts were wallets for back then. Some people wear fanny sacks. That's basically the same thing. <laughs> less cool. Way less cool, probably. But, or way, way less cool. Um, but make yourself money belts that don't wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor moth destroys. Another personal confession. Um, this aspect of not fearing and not being anxious, I, I struggle I struggle big time with. Um, I'm not proud of it. I have a deep sense of shame for the degree by which my anxiety wells up and manifests itself in brokenness in my relationships, in my health, in um, 
in kind of all areas of my life. And so my confession is that if you're feeling anxious about life, finances, about money, um, I know it's only mildly comforting to know that you're not alone, but you're not alone. And I share that struggle with you. And if you needed somebody to talk with about that, that can be in that struggle with you. Um, I'm learning, I'm turning a new leaf this year, that it's helpful to talk about these things. And I'm not very good at that, but I need the practice. And so this is my request of the church to say, help me practice in being reminded and drawn back to the security that I have in my father, because I struggle with it too. My life is built around appeasing, in some ways, the totally ridiculous grasps at security by my clients in, in, on ropes that are connected to nothing, right? And sometimes I'm helping people cling so firmly to a rope that they're holding on to for all of their security and they're finding it so wanting because it's just connected to nothing. And that can leave me confused. It can leave me confused, even as, an, even as, a, as a pastor and as an advisor, because I'm conflicted. But you're in good company if you're like me because I think there are others like me out there, because I sit across them all day long in my office, Christians alike. More often than not, I'm pushing a box of tissue across the table, because finances and money is a really, really emotional topic. But I think that the message of how we move from inward worship, of viewing God rightly through this passage, like what we just talked about, as our shepherd, our father, our king, as generous, as happy, that outward expression moves from simplicity, from accumulation to simplicity. We struggle in America, I struggle here with a disease of accumulation. We have so much stuff. We have so much stuff. I say that when I mean we, I'm not talking about you. Nancy and I have so much stuff. We, we, we have so much junk. Nancy has been better at this than, than me. This is my wife here in the front row. She's been on the deaccumulation quest and a big, massive garage sale yesterday. How much stuff did we sell? Two van loads of stuff. I don't say that because I'm proud. I'd be like, yeah, good look at that. I say that and be like, oh my gosh, and our house is still full of stuff. Like those two van loads of stuff went out, and I walked into the house again. I was like, my house is full of stuff still. I accumulated too much stuff. But when we look at the passages in Scripture, let's look through some scenarios. The passage here says, sell your possessions. So let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Sell something. This is where we start to go, ooh. <laughs> sell something. Well, what happened to the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus in Luke? What did Jesus tell him to do? Anybody remember? Sell how much? Everything. Did he do it? Nope. Went away sad. What about Zacchaeus? Do you remember Zacchaeus? We're going to get even more tricky. What did Zacchaeus do when he met Jesus? He sold half of everything, right? And then he promised to give back four times anything that he cheated out of anybody. He was a tax collector, so, you know, he did a lot of cheating. So he said, I'll pay back four times however much I cheated somebody else. What about Barnabas? Do you remember Barnabas? Came and met Jesus. How much did he sell? He sold a field. Okay, so we've got Barnabas sold a field. Zacchaeus, half of his stuff. The rich young ruler asked to sell everything. We get these pictures now, these little vignettes of people in the life meeting Jesus and their possessions. The prescription isn't how much. We should ask the question not, Jesus, how much should I sell? The question would be, why? Why should I sell anything? Why, why deaccumulate at all? 
I think the message is in the answer of, first, who's Jesus talking to? If you go back a little bit on verse 22, it says the answer in Luke. Who's he talking to? The disciples. He's not talking to Pharisees. That's a different message. He's not talking to that rich young ruler that's not a believer yet but looking to know Christ. He's talking to the disciples. And so I think that these were not rich people. These were not people with lots of stuff. These were not people with lots of money. So this isn't a message for the rich. And it's not a message for the poor. It's a message just for us. And the why, I think, is because these people live so close to the edge, so hand-to-mouth in some ways. There wasn't money to give, to give alms. They had to sell something to give. In order for them to be, to be givers at all, they needed to sell something and get rid of stuff. Why is it harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle? I think because riches does something to us. And I don't mean rich. I just mean any riches. You can have nothing, but the day you accumulate the something, that something that you get, moving from nothing, does something to you. Does it not? It affects you. And you feel this little burn inside your heart and mind as you rub dollars together in your hand and go, feels good. I feel a little bit more safe and secure. And God's asking us to step out in faith, not to have nothing, but to say the why deaccumulate is it's orienting our hearts rightly. I think it's because primarily when these people, when the Macedonians were giving an axe to the, to the famine victims in Jerusalem, these were really poor people that Paul commends. And he says he's so thankful that they were so giving and they had to sell things. And they were poor. They had nothing. And they gave of themselves to the victims of this famine that were in, was in Jerusalem. I think it's because when we give, as opposed to just tithing, as opposed to just passing baskets around too, which I'm not, I'm not vilifying that, but I'm just saying when we give to benefit others, it takes the inward expression of worship we just talked about as Jesus is shepherd, father, and king, and generous and happy, and all of a sudden it's out, invisible, and expressive. It's in the world. When we give, we take of ourselves and give to organizations, to charities, to people in need, to communities, to the Schenkenbergers, to Boog Rose when he, was, when he was sick, to families that are in need. When we do that, it takes the inward expression of worship that nobody sees but ourselves and God and all of a sudden manifests itself in the world. It's out and visible and others see it. Not only that, but it becomes, God becomes real to the people who receive it. When Jesus walked and did ministry, and he would take a man whose shriveled hand and he opened it up again. Did Jesus not become much more real to that man? Or God become very real to that individual? When Jesus spit on his hands and muds and wiped it on the guy's eyes and all of a sudden he could see, was God not more real to that man? What was the purpose of these miracles? It was to validate and to confirm his deity, to make Jesus real, to confirm that he is who he said he was. Does God not become more real to this community when we give to others? When there's someone who's been prayerfully asking for provision, for money, for, for something that they need, and the community of faith meets that need, is God not honored? Is he not more real to those people then? Is worship not happening then? It takes it from a hidden expression of worship when we give to a visible, open expression of worship. And it's awesome. It's awesome. I think, finally, when we look at this passage... You say, what's the connection between giving and this treasure in heaven that it talks about at the end, right? That passage when it says, 
when you sell your possessions and give, and you make money belts that don't wear out, all of a sudden this unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes and no moth destroys. What's the connection between giving and treasures in heaven? I think it's this. I think God motivates us to give in not saying when we give, we receive in an earthly sense. How we receive in an earthly sense, though, I think is real. And that may or may not happen. But the promise is, is that we receive more than we give in heaven. He's saying the treasures you develop in heaven far greater than what you receive or give away here and now. And if we really believed that, we would give more. If the church really believed that, the average church wouldn't be giving only 2% or 3% of its income towards its tithes or, or charitable givings. The fact is, is we in America just don't believe it. We look at a passage like that and say, if that's true, if we're developing treasures in heaven, if those treasures surpass the treasures we have here, and if we give, that is the conduit to receiving those treasures. That is the mechanism to those treasures being received. If giving is the means by which we build treasures in heaven by giving here and serving others here, then if we believe that, we would give, would we not? If we were convinced of it, we would be givers. My clients... The ones who are heavenly minded, the ones who have that perspective, are some of the most powerful world changers because of their ability to meet the needs of others. They're some of the most fulfilled and happiest. They're also some of the ones who work and work and work, as Paul says in Ephesians, so they may have something to share with those in need. And I think it's because the message is, is their lives are a life that typifies simplify and serve, simplify and serve, simplify and serve. And that echoing refrain in their minds of simplifying and serving is building treasures in heaven. And it's awesome to see. So, the connection with worship is this. Jesus commands us to accumulate treasures in heaven, that is, to maximize our joy in God. And he says that the way to do this is to simplify and serve. And finally, your heart moves towards what you cherish. I'll close with this. And the passage closes with this. And this isn't, I love how Alistair Begg says, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That means exactly what it sounds like. If every single one of your dollars is a tool used to express your values, then that's scary. Scary for me, because I wake up every day and I go, shoot, this, this journey's tough. It's tough. And we're called to something really radical here. We're called to live very otherly and very different. And if we live in Orange County and our lives look very Orange County, and if we live in Orange County and our lives are mirroring what it is to be normal, God's calling us to be really abnormal in this sense, really otherly. I said this to, to Boog and he wanted this to be the title of my message and I don't agree because it's too harsh. <laughs> but he asked, I was asking questions when we were preparing and I said something like, would Judas be comfortable with how you handle your finances? And he was like, that's a great, t that's a great title to a message. I go, no, that's, that's too hard. I mean, <laughs> the, guy, the guy sold out the Savior for money and killed himself. I mean, I'm not saying, like, it's too harsh. But I think if you're feeling the tension of how you handle your own finances, whether you have a lot or little. And what I mean by handle your finances 
is by saying the value you place on money, that security that you've put in that, the degree by which you have radar that looks out for the needs of others, and the degree by which you connect your giving with worship, not just in your tithes. If you're feeling like there's, there's movement that's needed, that is sanctification, right? That was the prayer to say, let's move from where we are to where God's calling us. Not simply because it's what God's asking us to be, but he's saying to us that there's a promise I'm leaving for you. Treasures in heaven for his glory and for your good. For our good. If we believe it's for our good, then let's lean into that. Let's step into that. Do you trust him? Do you trust it's for your good? Do you trust that you're better off being loosely holding these things that are yours? If so, then this is my prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, if you would reorient our hearts so that as we say these prayers that this would be both proclamations of truth and aspirational, that they would be something that we aspire to be true. So I say, God, I hereby trust you as my happy, generous shepherd, father, and king, so that I will not be afraid when I have less money for myself when I supply the needs of others. I hereby resist the incredible pressure in my culture to accumulate more and more and cast my lot with the impulse to simplicity for the sake of others. God, I hereby lay up treasures in heaven and not on earth so that my joy in God will be maximized forever. With this offering that I've given this morning and with my life, I declare that since my treasure is in heaven, my heart goes after you, God. Amen.